Hey everyone, welcome to Bible Discoveries, the weekend show. On this show, we discuss big topics that pop up as we're reading through the scripture, and we also aim to answer and discuss some of your questions as well that you sent to us, so thank you. Thank you for sending it to you. If this is your first time here, my name is Corey, and I'm joined by my husband, Matlock. Hey, Matlock. How you doing? Good. You? Good. Doing pretty good. Doing good. Taking, taking a sip of tea? Yeah. Still a little hot, but... <laughs> okay, well... After you're done your sure. sip of tea, can you, <laughs> can you let everyone know what scripture we're covering yes. this today? You today, should have read. You should have read. If you didn't, that's okay. If you're but, following along at Bible Discovery, <laughs> yeah. you should have read. That's right. Romans 15 to 2 Corinthians 3. Now, yes. So that was our weekly reading. That was our weekly reading for Bible Discovery because yeah. we're going through the Bible in one year. Now, with that in mind, there's a lot of questions that come up every time throughout the week whether they're Bible questions or viewer questions. Last week was a lot of viewer questions. This week, too, a lot of viewer questions. Hey, you know what? Don't you find that in Paul that there is a ton of questions whenever we're reading through the letters of Paul? And I think I have a theory yeah. on why, because Paul speaks so long form. Mm. And it, really, these letters were meant to be read all in one chunk. But yeah. a lot of times we don't do that. We only read like this tiny chunk, then this tiny chunk, and this tiny chunk. And it's so easy to get Paul out of context. Oh, especially because Paul also speaks like objectively, like all the time. So, you, you know, as we talked about last his week. His style. His yeah. style. Like even one sentence sounds like, oh, he's speaking universally here in this one, this one passage. No, you have, <laughs> yes. you can't break each verse up into a discrete package of truth. What is he saying itself. as a whole? Yeah, you got to talk about, Paul's yeah. completely a contextual guy. Yes. You always got to take his whole dot, everything. Because he's, he's building on one thought, then building on another thought, then building on another thought. And he's kind of creating a mosaic of, of the way of looking at things. It's really easy to get turned around, I think, when you're yes. just, when you're not reading it as a whole. I think the key here to look at Paul, even though Paul is a Pharisee, he does was, not... Was, was a Pharisee. Sorry, he was a Pharisee. <laughs> Poor guy. He does not write his epistles like Leviticus. True. Right? Yes. He is writing it like wisdom literature. Mm -hmm. He's writing it for you to take something to under to apply think yourself and understand, to think about it in spirit Reason. and in truth and in, in all supplication, and then apply it. Um, so because of that, we're not looking at you know here's an instruction, here's an instruction, do this, do this. It's not like all that. tied together. It's all tied together. It's not written like Leviticus, right? It's not written like that. Anyways, the right. questions we have different questions that we questions, have. Yes. I know I derailed our our. No, that's good. The questions pertain to today <laughs> are things like why don't miracles happen today? Mm. Mm -hmm. Head coverings. That's mm -hmm. a big one that happens in 1 Corinthians, right? Mm -hmm. Among other things. Among other things. Are so we going to be judged? That's another one. <laughs> Are Christians going to be judged? Right. Okay, right. I want to, I actually, right. I want to kick off these questions. I'm going to throw one your way first because. The, the big question though. Oh. Should we wait for that? Now, no, the big you question, the big question. You want to know the big question is it actually pertains to miracles. That will be at the end. Here is the big question. Okay. And then we'll jump into the first question. Deal. Okay. So for those who want to hear the big question, we're going to answer this at the end of the episode. It's by two viewer questions that have been condensed into one. So the first one is by Debbie. Why are modern day miracles less impressive than those in Bible times? The second question is, why is it so difficult today for some preachers, preachers to do signs and wonders as in the times of Jesus and the first apostles? That is Kaida, Kaida, Kida, Kida. Don't, don't know how to say your name. Thank you for the question. <laughs> Good Anyways. questions. I'm excited to <laughs> yeah. I'm excited to dive into those and kind of wrestle with yes. some of the issues. But first, I think so too. I'm going to pass on to you of your question, okay, Matlock? Right. And I'm just going to sit here and listen to you and digest and react because sure. that's what I feel like doing. Okay, it's from First Corinthians three. 
It's a question, a question from Chris. I need to enunciate that. A yeah. question from Chris. And it says this, will Christians still be judged for their sins, both now and on the day of judgment? Okay. Well, yes and no. There's judgment, but not condemnation. So we're talking about Christians, right? Mm -hmm. Will Christians still be judged for their sins? Talk about true Christians or we're talking about nominal Christians? So of course, there's a whole bunch of Christians out there that claim to be Christian, but they're not necessarily truly following Christ. They're just them in name. These people might, you might sit beside them in church. Like you might see them walking down the street or hear them on YouTube, like they're everywhere. Uh, it's, some people might also call it cultural Christians. I don't really care for the term. The point is, it's Christians that go by name and people who truly follow Christ. So there's, there's a division there. Uh, the second part of your question is, is it now and on the day of judgment? Um, on the day of judgment, you will be judged. Everyone will be judged, but though true Christians will not be condemned. I'm going to read for you 1 Corinthians 3, verses 10 to 17. Okay. This is Paul speaking, of course. According to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation, and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care of how he builds upon it. Okay, so that means you guys are, were building upon the foundation laid by Christ being the chief cornerstone and the apostles. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, or straw, each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it. The day being the day of judgment, the day of the Lord, the day when Christ returns and judges the heavens and the earth. Because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. Did you build it out of good things or bad things? Is it built for your own desires and needs, or is it built truly in the things of God? If the work that anyone has built on the, uh, on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone, anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved but only as through fire. Do you not know that you are God's temple and the Spirit of God dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy, and you are that temple. So what's amazing here is not just saying your body's a temple. He's saying you, your soul, your beliefs, everything about you is part of this temple. So when, if you build false beliefs on top of the foundation, coming the day of fire, coming the day of judgment, it will be burned up. It won't stand. It can't last. Why? Because it's your own ideas. It's not true. So yes, there's a judgment process. Though, what does Paul say? Though he will be saved as though through fire. So the, the, the things that you've made true that aren't true are going to be burned up. And praise God for that. We don't want lies anywhere, right? That's the whole point of us right now is to remove the lies. So falsehoods, false beliefs, uh, misconceptions, these things are going to be burned up. Right? But the point here to be said is the person is saved. Mm -hmm. Right? As though through fire. Um, anyway, so right there. So will Christians still be judged for their sins now? Well, in a way, we have saw this the other day in Romans. God talks about be obeying churchly authorities as not just... Uh, Earthly authorities. Thank you. Yep. Obeying gotcha. authorities uh, for your conscience, but also not to suffer God's wrath. And we see this with God's people when they go away and Cyrus comes in. Babylon, Persia, they come in and they take down Israel, right? So God can use other governments, other countries to create judgment upon a nation. So the point here to be said is that there can be judgment now, but a judgment now does not imply ultimate condemnation. Mm -hmm. So you can, right? So that's what's important there.
So yeah, you can be judged now. You will. Be, everyone will be judged at the end of the day. But being judged does not necessarily mean condemnation. It just depends on the context and the way that you use it, and also your ability to discern that. So that would be my answer. I think so. I think that's the way to approach it. What do you think? Yeah, I think that's good. Yeah. Okay. If you're good with that, I hope you're good with that. We're gonna move on. Let's do it. Corey. Yes. First Corinthians eleven. Okay. Yes. This is from Debbie. It's a good one. It talks about women wearing a covering on their heads while praying. Why aren't women doing this? Are we supposed to? Honestly, I'm confused. Thank you and God bless. Right. Thank you for the question, Debbie. Most churches do not do this because um, most believe that this was a cultural time-bound issue uh, within the the early church. Um, and, and what I mean by that is we have to look really carefully at 1 Corinthians 11, and we find pretty quickly that it's not referring to all women, but it's referring to wives specifically. So married women within the Christian congregation that are praying and prophesying during the service. So they're speaking in these church services. Uh, and they, when they do so, Paul is encouraging them to wear a, a cover on their head, to wear, to wear like a, yeah, to, to cover their head. Now, what we know uh, from the first century culture of, of this day is really really interesting. And, and it ties so well into 1 Corinthians 11 because Paul is talking about marriage uh, specifically and the authority of the husband and the wife having authority overhead because of the angel's sake. It's, and and it's, it's, the language is difficult for us to understand because we're so far removed from that time period. But what we know, what New Testament scholars tell us about this time period is that married women covered their hair because in uh, both Jewish and Greek, so Jewish and Gentile contexts, the hair was seen as very attractive, uh, as um, as pro uh, provoking the lust, the desire of men. So as a woman, you took care of your hair when you were unmarried and you, you made it look as attractive as possible if you were trying to attract a husband. That's just what you did. And then once you became married, you covered it up and you were essentially saying, my beauty is reserved for my husband. I'm married now. I'm taken now. And to uncover your hair as a married woman would have been, would have been seen as, um, provoking adultery. So basically saying, I'm on the market, if you will. But that's not the only context of 1 Corinthians 11. The other context is that we also know that it was true that upper class Roman women specifically did not wear head coverings, married women, if they were upper class and Roman. Actually, they did the opposite. They were trendsetters. And we see the same thing today, don't we? I mean, I'm on Instagram. We see it. There's trendsetters in hair and clothing and makeup. Upper class Roman women who had the money and the time and the staff to trendset were doing that. And they were doing it with their hair. Now, I think what's really interesting about 1 Corinthians 11 is in the context of 1 Corinthians, Paul has been talking about making concessions for your brothers and sisters in Christ so as to not offend them, right? He talks about him not 
picking up his rights as an apostle, but rather laying them down for the good of the congregation. And what's interesting about this when we come to the head covering section, knowing about married women generally covered their hair unless they were upper class Roman women and then they were trend setting. So they saw it as trend setting, but probably those lower class, more lower class women saw it as you're trying to attract my husband's you're trying to get his wander, his eye to wander over to you. What's really interesting about this is we know that the early Christian church wasn't gathering in official buildings like synagogues. They were gathering in house churches. And this was seen as the women's domain, right? In, in some Greek and Roman um, circles, women would accompany their, their husbands to banquets. Uh, but generally speaking, the home was, seen, and there are exceptions to this rule, but generally speaking, the home was seen as the woman's place of authority or domain in a certain respect. And the marketplace and the banquets and things like that were seen as the men's realm. So now we're having church in the woman's home where she wouldn't have, even the lower class women wouldn't have covered their hair. Uh, and uh, probably unless they had male company. Uh, and so now we have this really interesting clash here where we're having church services with men involved and women involved in homes. And they would have been homes of upper class Gentile women who probably were unaccustomed to covering their hair. This is a very interesting backdrop for this. But I think what we see throughout Paul, Paul's writing in 1 Corinthians 11, is him talking about these women not bringing offense. Uh, so um, not, not taking off the symbol of their marriage so as to bring shame on the words that God is inspiring them to say, right? He's inspiring them to prophesy. He's inspiring them to pray. They should not pollute that by saying, it's my right to take off this head covering, right? It shouldn't be about trend setting and it should absolutely not be about lust. It should be done in a respectful way to God and in a wise way. So I think this is Paul advocating wisdom here to the women of this time. Um, and we know also he talks about men dishonoring their head by, by covering it. Um, the, we know that I think it's in Greek circles, the men uncovered their head to like, to, um, deal in, uh, pagan cults and rituals, but the Roman men covered their head, or maybe I have that backwards, but there's more, there's more variance in how men were treated in the pagan culture when it comes to, uh, like, uh, speaking in cultic situations. Uh, but it's pretty clear what well, women just weren't normally allowed to speak, uh, in, in any sort of pagan processions or anything like that, or, or ceremonies, unless you're talking like, uh, uh, very specific cults with priestesses or like the Oracle of Delphi, things like that. Right. Uh, but yeah, I think that's the, I think that's the general consensus and, and most Christian churches and most Christian denominations and traditions accept that just because of the teaching of right. the, the, the teaching of Paul here where it's specifically wives and he, he himself relates it to marriage and the authority structure of marriage. So, so uh, like, I think the equivalent would be a wedding ring. If so, it, like 
Yes, yeah, so that that would take that would that would show that would show the symbol of your marriage for sure. Right. But I think I think even more so, it's more than just the wedding ring as well. I right. think, and and this is where I I I veer off a little bit, and I think I go a little bit more conservative, um, in leaning because it because the hair wasn't just a symbol of marriage; it was also a symbol of lust. Yes. Right. Um, healthy, healthy attraction between husband and wife, unhealthy attraction between a wife and other men, right? right? So if these women were preening themselves and being like, okay, I'm going to look real hot for right. praying and prophesying <laughs> right, in church right. today, and all the elders are going right. to think I'm smoking, right? It's a bad, That's yeah, right. terrible. Right. That is, it should it's, not be about that. And so I think like an equivalent in today's society would be wearing really racy clothes to church so, on purpose as a Christian so, woman, not as someone who is unsaved or, or right. newly saved and doesn't know any better coming in, but as someone who knows this idea that, you know, it shouldn't be about us. It should be about God and we should do nothing to dishonor the name of God and to dishonor the word of God. So we have to be careful. So you careful. think the cultural equivalent is, just to kind of summarize, the cultural equivalent is a wife coming in to pray or prophesy uh, in scantily clad clothing, and without then, her wedding ring, and then ring. takes off her ring to pray or prophesy, yes. basically. Yes. And everyone would be like, "Why are you dress like that?" And like, why? You do it. And it would be like, so that's why Paul says here, uh, "It is better." It's the same as her shaving her head. Mm -hmm. She might. She's dishonored. It's like you're dishonoring not only your marriage, but you're dishonoring like God in this process. Yes, you so, are showing yourself unworthy to be a prophet, unworthy right. to be someone who prays in public because you're making it not about God and his word. Right. You're making it about yourself and the attention that you can attract to yourself. Right. And you're, and, and, um, think about the interpersonal issues with the upper class Roman women having no problem. They're used to not covering their heads. They're just trendsetters. That's what they think. And then you have more conservative, lower class women being like, what are you doing? Right. Are you trying to catch my husband's attention? Like, are you trying to be a homewrecker? And and so then there's this infighting between them. So even if the, the upper class Roman women aren't thinking about it like that, they're literally thinking, this is just what I do. This is just how I live my life. They're offending their sisters in Christ. Right. They, Knock it off. Right. And they could be, because it depends, because like, they could absolutely be thinking, oh, this will attract Absolutely. Right. But Absolutely. even if they're not thinking that, yes. it was wrong to do. It's there right. Was, there was cultural tension there. Yes. It's right to set aside your rights, your rights, right. to facilitate the fellowship of the brethren, right. right? And to bring honor to God in his household and bring honor to your marriage rather than the other way around. Right. So... Uh, I hope this answers your question. I think it does. <laughs> and like even still, like so, are we supposed to? I don't think this. Then there's no indication or obligation in the Mosaic Law that women have to wear head coverings. Mm -hmm. And even in Judaism today, like as Jewish tradition, men wear hair coverings too. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of one of those things where it's like, okay, men wear head coverings. You often see that image of Jesus pulling down his right, his cloak. Men wear head coverings. Women wear head coverings, um, and for different reasons, but they are still both doing it. Yes. Um, so it's not required in the law. It's very much a cultural thing, I think, is what you're saying. And uh, so it doesn't sound like here that Paul is making a command. We've talked about this many times. He's it, definitely, yeah. He's not making a command that everyone has to wear head coverings. No. And this is something that we do. He's definitely making an appeal, several different appeals for it. Right. But. Right. Given the, given the context of the culture and what they're dealing with. Yes. Okay. Right. And, right. Any, any 
bases this reasoning too in line of scripture as well. Absolutely. Right. And like he, even, even at the end where he says in verses 13 to 16, judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a wife to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair, it is a disgrace for him. But if a woman has long hair, it is her glory. Paul knew there was exceptions to this rule. He knew about the Nazarite vow. He knew about Samson. He knew about um, uh, Absalom. He knew that there were people in the past and in other cultures where long hair was perfectly acceptable for a man. And even long hair is subjective. Like, is long hair here? Is long hair here? Right. Right? He knew there were exceptions to that, which I think is interesting. But generally, generally, this is what he's saying in their culture. And to continue on reading there, for her hair is given to her for a covering. If anyone is inclined to be contentious, we have no such practice, nor do the churches of God. Right. So. Perfect. There's this principle that we draw out of it. Right. Again, this concept. It's not about us. Again, Paul's not creating Leviticus 2.0. Agreed. Right. He's, he's, He's creating wisdom for us to take this and see the deeper meaning behind what's happening here and apply that. Because obviously these Roman women that you're talking about, these trendsetters, um, could become Christian. Yeah. And absolutely. that doesn't mean they were forced I think under a, obligation. We know a bunch of them were. Right. But I'm going to say that, of course, but that, that doesn't mean under forced by, under Christian law, that they had to wear hard coverings now that you're a Christian. Yes. And he right. doesn't even say, wives, you must wear head coverings in your day to day lives. He says specifically when you're in church praying and prophesying. So he's not even applying that to their everyday Right lives which is saying something but just to think about it when you come together what are you trying to honor are you trying to bring attention to god and his word or are you trying to bring attention to yourself one of those things is right one of those things is wrong right ultimately yes yes all right so let's just move on let's do it okay so this is from linda another question yep i thought when you were saved uh born again you received the holy spirit my question the bible says that everyone has different gifts. I never received speaking in tongues. Should all Christians be able to speak in tongues? Okay. Okay, Linda. Linda, thank you for this question. No, I believe that the scripture is pretty clear in 1 Corinthians 12 that not all Christians will speak in tongues or are, it's not required. It's not a required sign of the Holy Spirit that you speak in tongues. It does seem to have been a normative sign at the beginning of the Christian church, but Paul says here that not all Christians are everything, right? He goes into this in 1 Corinthians 12. He goes into the teaching that there's one body of Christ, one body of the church, but different members, right? So um, let's see. Let's read in, we're going to read verses 14 and 15 of 1 Corinthians 12. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot should say, Because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body. That would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. So there's differences within the church. And that's a good thing, right? That's how a body functions. We have different body parts with different purposes and different functions. But if we jump down then to 1 Corinthians 12, And we are going to read verses 27 to 31. That's what we're going to do, 27 to 31. Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. And God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, 
helping, administrating, and various kinds of tongues. Are all apostles? Are all prophets? Are all teachers? Do all work miracles? Do all possess gifts of healing? Do all speak with tongues? Do all interpret? But earnestly desire the higher gifts, and I will show you a still more excellent way. And then Paul goes into speaking how we must have love, the love of God, uh, to to accomplish the, the purposes of God's giftings and the purposes of the kingdom of God. So right there, Paul goes into a list where the answer is obviously no, right? Are all apostles? No. Are all prophets? No. Are all teachers? No. Do all work miracles? You get the idea. Do all possess gifts of healing? Do all speak with tongues? Do all interpret, but earnestly desire the higher gifts? Okay, so this comes in the context of what is immediately preceding us, the teaching that we are the body of Christ and we are different and we have different purposes and different abilities. But when we all work together, the body functions and the church functions. So please do not let it bother you, Linda, if God has not given you the gift of speaking in tongues. You are a member of the the body of Christ if you're a born-again believer, and the Holy Spirit will gift you with what giftings you need to fulfill your purpose. That's a good answer. What do you think? I I think that's exactly right. Like, some people have the different, everyone has different gifts. It's all over 1 Corinthians 12. Like, it's all over it, right? Mm -hmm. Where he's talking about everyone who has different gifts. They're empowered by the same spirit. Yes. And and the spirit apportions to each one individually as he wills. Mm-hmm. So in other words, like, it's, I don't know, how do you get that more clear? Everyone has different gifts. Mm-hmm. And that doesn't mean everyone has the gift of tongues. Even though Paul does say, I wish you would all have the gift of tongues. Yeah, and that's over in 1 Corinthians 14, where right. he goes, now I want you all to speak in tongues, but even more to prophesy. Right. So he's like, this is what I want. I want the church of God to 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 be involved in these right. things. And that's quite a quite a thing, because everyone, the, the movement that's going around is like, oh, you need to speak in tongues to, to be a Christian. Mm-hmm. It's like, okay, well, actually, you should be desiring prophecy more. Yes. Now, pro- well, because, yeah. and, and Paul explains the reasoning for that. It's not just kind of coming out of nowhere in 1 Corinthians 14. He's talking about how when you speak in tongues, you're edifying, you're building up yourself spiritually. Right. But when you prophesy, you're building up, you're edifying the right. church spiritually. And to be clear on that, because some people get confused by prophecy. Prophecy doesn't just mean you're predicting something in the future, right? You're speaking on behalf of God. That's prophecy. So that could be like a more, like a lot of Isaiah's prophecies are just more up, like you've done this wrong. Yeah, it's conviction. It's conviction, right? So it's not, when we say prophecy, it's not just God, you know. This is what's going to happen, which it yeah, does, exactly. it does certainly involve that. Yes, it but does. But it also but involves much more. Just, yeah. We shouldn't cheapen the gift of prophecy or, or the concept of prophecy as that's a whole. That's right. When, right. So if someone says you've done this wrong, right? And the person hears that and they know that that's God speaking through them to you, right? Mm-hmm. That is, that's a good thing, right? They're saying, oh, I feel like God is telling me that I've done something wrong and I, I can sense that. That's not the same thing as, oh, hey, in 20 days from now, there's going to be this great war, right? It's, it's not not the same thing. It's not the same thing. Anyways, but they're involved. They're involved. They're, they're intertwined. It's just not always predictive. That's my role. All right. Let's move on. Let's if, you, if you have follow-up questions, pop them down in the comment section below. Okay, First yeah. Corinthians 15, Malak. Yes. I have a question for you from okay. Dale. Dale asks, can a Christian be cremated in regard to the resurrection? Okay. Can a Christian 
be cremated. I'm very curious how we got there from 1 Corinthians 15. So I'm, I'm flipping there. Or is it just because 1 Corinthians 15 talks about the resurrection? That's it. So I don't think it's, this question is not related to 1 Corinthians 15. The question is, can a Christian be cremated in regards to the resurrection? Right. And then First Corinthians 15 talks about the resurrection. First, exactly. Got it. Right. I'm exactly. there with you now. <laughs> that, is, that is a loose connection, but that's essentially that. So that's okay. otherwise, where else do you put this? There's only mm -hmm. a few sections where you can. Mm -hmm. Because why? Cremation is not spoken about in the Bible. Yeah, so, that's true. Yeah, so it's like there's no explicit reference in the Mosaic Law against cremation. Mm -hmm. um, there's no, it's not unlawful in any way. So uh, because of that. In fact, we know Saul and his sons were cremated. And I was going to get there. Oh, I, I'm sorry. No, no, you're good. You can even chime in now. I stole it. It's totally No, it. it's good. It's actually a good example. Uh, yeah. Saul and his sons were cremated uh, when their bodies were rescued from their dishonor uh, that, you know, the Philistines had hung them on the walls of Beth Shem. And um, so the men of Jabesh Gilead, is it? Right. Oh, man, that's uh, really oh, bad. I can't remember what okay, the city. Yeah. It's a certain city. I want to say it's Shebesh Gilead, but I could be wrong. Um, uh, rescue the bodies, and then they and then they burn the bodies and give them a proper burial. And there's no, uh, as far as I'm aware, there's no indication in the text themselves that that is a terrible thing to do. And it may have been because of the advanced state of decomp that the bodies were in. Like, we're assuming they'd been there for yeah. days. They'd been hung outside on a hot... So, oh, oh, good. So this is a good example. So that's one of the few cases where we have, like, someone who's already dead. Yep that gets burned up afterwards. And yes. you have two people here, okay? Saul and Jonathan. Saul mm -hmm. was notably evil. Mm -hmm. Jonathan was not. Yes. Both of their bodies get burned. So I think- Well, the, and the intention of the men was to rescue and give an honorable burial that's right. to them. It wasn't like people who hated Saul and Jonathan were trying to give them a dishonorable burial. Yeah, that's exactly They were right. trying to give them an honorable burial. So there may have been rules about- That's exactly right. So the, the, the problems that people have with, with cremation is that it's, you're desecrating a body. You're mutilating a body, right? You're destroying God's image that's holy. Um, there's all these things. Also, the, the negative connotations in Scripture that come with burning. Obviously, there's negative yes. connotations. Or judgment, stuff like Absolutely. that. Absolutely. So, obviously, there's negative connotations. And I'm not saying also that burial, you know, the burial isn't the optimal way of doing things. Because I think burial is, the way we do it, is the best way of doing it. Having said that, I don't think we can say that, to the question, can a, uh, can a Christian be cremated? I don't think we can say no. I think you can. Yeah. I also, can a Christian, uh, can a cremated Christian be resurrected? Obviously. And well, and, and here's the thing, just even thinking logically, like when you look at what is left of yes. bodies after thousands of years, like the, um, the Vatican right now, I know this is touchy for people, right. but uh, St. Peter's Basilica in Vatican City uh, claims to have found the bones of Peter. And maybe, I mean, I feel like it's the closest thing we've got right now. But you'll notice there's, if you if you look up the images of the bones, there is not much left. Most of it has turned to dust because that is the natural process. The bones are the last thing to go, right? The flesh goes right. first and the bones take a, a much longer time to go, but eventually they too turn to dust. So cremation is essentially speeding up that process. But exactly. if God can resurrect Peter, which he certainly will, he certainly will. Yeah. If he can resurrect Peter from fragmentary bone and mostly dust, he can do the same for so, people who have been cremated. Right. So here's some examples. Christians being martyred were eaten by lions in the Colosseum. They became lion poop. I, I know that sounds very disrespectful, but I'm just saying that they did. They were uh, defecated out. And right. Does that mean God can't resurrect them because they're eaten by lions? Uh, even the bubonic plague, okay, 
when people in Christendom in the 12th century was being was being ravaged by the Black Plague and killing one third of Europeans, they were burning bodies of Christians because they were covered in disease. Right. Does that mean they're not resurrected? Or like, what about bodies lost at sea? They get scavenged. That's right. Get eaten. Exactly. So it's like the, to say that someone can't be resurrected because they were burned. I don't, it doesn't follow. So I would say that. So yeah, immediately, yes. So the cremation does not affect the resurrection in any way. And it shouldn't affect the resurrection in any way. And I don't think it indicates whether or not you are evil because I don't think it martyrs. Like, is it because someone got eaten by a lion? Like the man of God, for instance, in First Samuel, or is this First Kings? Who gets eaten by the lion? So there was context within the scriptures itself that tells you why this is important. Kings, yeah. Right, and kings, thank you. Um, however, the, the Christians being eaten by lions, it's not the same thing. You can't just be like, oh, you got eaten by lions, you're always evil. You, you get burned up, you're always evil. It's like, mm -hmm. it doesn't work that way. Um, okay, so here's another thing to, con to, con uh, to keep in mind. You already brought up that all bodies turn to dust, of course, right? Um, all things will be judged by fire. Now, you either be refined or condemned in this, but let's go to Second Peter, verses 3. Second uh, Peter three verses seven to ten. So, but by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. But the day of the Lord, this is verse ten now. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved. And the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Again, this idea of like, it's being cremated, you could say. It's being burned up right to ash. So you have this judgment of the worlds happening. So we can't just always say, you know, that it's, it's always outside of God's provision or, oh, they're, they're condemned because God's doing that. So what is God going to do with the world? He's going to redeem the world. So the whole point is that God judges it and then he redeems it. He's going to remake it. He's going to remake it. So it's kind of the whole point. So it's like, yeah, so this doesn't affect that. Um, another thing, as you already pointed out, Corey, cremation is not always practiced in negative contexts or for evil persons or by evil persons. And it's not necessarily mutilation, desecration, or sinful. So you brought this up with King Saul and Jonathan. We already talked about this. The reference is 1 Samuel 31, uh, verses 8 to 13. You can read that if you want to or you can check it out in your own time. But essentially, they burned the royal bodies because um, they were decomposing and mutilated. So it was a sign of honor and respect for them. Because if you recall, David was all about uh, protecting Saul and his family and, and, and because he was a man of God. He was chosen by God. So he was honoring Saul, even in times of persecution, consistently honoring Saul. And he did so even, unto, even into his death. So it wasn't like David all of a sudden was like, oh, you're, you're going to hell. I'm just going to burn you and my, my best buddy, Jonathan. It's not how that works. So again, no indication there. Um, and then also to, I think, uh, I think if you were to take cremation lawfully, like, oh, every time you cremated someone, it necessarily means they're condemned. I, like, oh, it's because it's not in the Bible, therefore it's wrong. Like, I, if you're going to go that angle, we can be really legalistic about it. Currently, how we're burying people isn't in the Bible. Like the, the way the way yeah, the way they buried people in the Bible is way different yeah. across the Bible. Like yeah. they buried people differently at the time of the kings than they did in the second temple. That's how you actually in archaeology understand when someone's is from a certain time period, how they buried the dead. Yeah, it helps. Exactly. Yeah. So my point is, is that like you, you can't even make a case that the burial method is is you know, there's a better burial method. Anyways. 
So my point in saying all this is that I don't think cremation is obligatory in the scriptures. I think we're called to goodness, truth, living our conscience right, right? Following God with all our hearts with strength and mind. And did you want to say something? I was just going to say, God created Adam and Eve originally from dust. So why couldn't he recreate from dust? When we repent in dust and ashes, right? The point in that is that we're repenting in what we were created in and what we become in destruction. So we're repenting in our, in our, we're repenting of our creation and of our uh, destruction. That's the concept of dust and ashes, right? Um, so yes, I don't see why. So I, I, again, I know there's some some people hold to the certain uh, Orthodox sects, uh, especially in the medieval times, uh, Catholicism, Judaism held to this strict rule, but not um, no cremation. And and truth be told, in terms of in terms of beauty and in terms of what is the most symbolic message, yeah, of course. Allowing the natural processes to exactly allowing the natural processes is the best is the best method in my mind, and the burial right you don't want to destroy the body it is a human soul you want to take care of it I think that it housed a human soul thank you thank you but anyways the point here is that that is you know a a beautiful symbol that should be retained having said that you come to today COVID nineteen hits people get sick people can't afford uh, even just the cost of burial in Western society is insane. Exactly. It's through so the roof. People can't even afford it now. So should we say, oh, that person's not going to heaven because they couldn't afford cremation? Do you get a proper burial? It's like, what? It's silly. It, it's, I think it's silly. And anyone who's kind of had that legalistic view, I think their hands have been shown as time has moved on. Um, and to add to these two things to keep in mind about people burning up, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were willing to be burned up alive to worship God alone in Daniel 3. And the same way Paul spoke uh, of this about himself when he said, if I can give all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. That's First Corinthians 13. Mm-hmm. So my point in saying that is, is that regardless if you give up your body to be burned, right? For the sake, right? If you don't have love, what's the point of this law in the first place? It doesn't matter. Anyways, I think that's all right. it. I think that's good. Corey, moving on. Ready? Moving on. Are we... Question- Jumping to the big question. Do you want to jump to the big question? Yes. Okay, let's do it. Let's do it. I I feel like it's big question time. Big question time. (laughs) All right, let's do it. Uh, I already read the big question. Let's do it again. Why are modern day miracles less impressive than those in Bible times? Why is it so difficult for some preachers to do signs and wonders as in the times of Jesus and the first apostles? From Debbie and Kaita. Kaita? Kaita? Kaita. Something like that. I know Nikita, but I don't know. Yeah, it doesn't matter. It's anyway. cool. I would like to know how to pronounce this name. It's very cool. <laughs> All right. Okay. So I, I do, these questions are undoubtedly related, but I do think they are different questions. They are related, but I do think they're different questions. Yes. So like for Debbie's question, why are modern day miracles less impressive than those in biblical times? I struggle with this one because what miracles are you talking about? What modern day miracles are less impressive than biblical Miracles? Are we talking this, the the ten plagues of Egypt? Uh, because the reason that we know about the ten plagues of Egypt is only because in God's providence He had them written down, He had them recorded, and passed on to us today. Right? So 
There are, in theory, there could be miracles going on around the world that just aren't being recorded and, and, and broadcast to us, right? And we even know today, with the 10 plagues of Egypt, there are people who are trying to, who are trying to find naturalistic explanations for the 10 plagues of Egypt. So even when things happen today, they can be naturalized, right? right? They can be naturally explained. Now, I think a really interesting antidote to this, and I haven't read all the way through it, but, um, uh, Craig Keener has done a series of books on modern day miracles. And there's volumes and volumes of, well, two volumes, story it's after huge. story. It's, they're huge books. Of, of modern day miracle accounts that have medical backing to them, which is very, very interesting. Yes. From all over the world. So Resurrection I, accounts? Yeah. Yeah, dramatic healing accounts. Yeah. Yes. Like all the, all the stuff you Things read Things to about, do with weather. Yes. Even even in church history, uh, Boniface, right? When he's going over to uh, uh, to the Vikings, if I recall this story correctly, there was a Yggdrasil, the, the tree of the gods, right? Uh, he's like, this is this is an idol, and mm -hmm. he goes to cut it down. And I'm pretty sure, hopefully, I got the story right. Lightning bolt strikes the tree, and all the Vikings are like, "Holy smokes!" The tree just burns up. They're like, "Your god has control over over Thor," and so it's like. Uh, and so they're all like blown away and they're all, you know, they this tribe becomes Christian because Boniface is going to chop it down with an axe but then the lightning bolt strikes first. Anyways, yes. the point is like that's a miracle. Like these people see that God is more powerful than their gods through this. And that's just like, that would be something you would read in the Bible. So anyways, and that's, you know, that's 500 years ago plus, but um, either way, more than that, it's a thousand. But, but we're not, like we're, the, the Bible gives us the privilege of reading ancient Israel's history through the lens of the prophets of God. Right. So so through the, the the lens of the Holy Spirit, right? The inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So we get to see those miracle miracle accounts up close and personal. Uh, but some of them don't seem as big as like we I mean, compare and contrast the Red Sea crossing with Elisha rescuing an axe head from the river. Right. Right? The only reason we know about the, the axe head being rescued from the river, river is because it's in the scripture. Right. Because the authors of scripture decided to write that down. Right? Whereas we may find in history evidence of the 10 plagues of Egypt, uh, but like, because those are bigger on a national, on, on a more international scale. Right? So it's really difficult to say that, 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 God's not still doing miracles or that they're somehow less impressive than those in biblical times because we don't have a prophet of God writing down. God, the, the, the scripture, the canon is closed. So we're not adding to the scripture now, but I, I have a sneaking suspicion when we get to heaven, there's going to be a lot. We get into the new heavens and the new earth. There's going to be a lot of praising God for miracles that right. have happened since. And I, I, there wasn't that saying what Jesus didn't do many miracles there because of their hardness of their hearts. Yeah, or because that, of their unbelief. Yeah, when Jesus is talking about Nazareth, right. like going to Nazareth, and there's a few other times as right. well. Right, and so you have something here which is very similar to in the West, where like, oh, we will always look for a natural explanation for why something happens. Yes, that is literally so, the definition of unbelief. So this rolls in now to the natural question that happens after you kind of. After you talk about, well, right. we don't necessarily know that there's not impressive miracles going on, mm -hmm. even on an international scale or a national scale. But then uh, 
The next question is, why is it so difficult today for some preachers to do signs and wonders as in the time of Jesus and the first apostles? Because we look in most, in most, if not all of our churches today, and we're like, I would say most of our churches today, and we're like, okay, where are these gifts? Yeah, right. Where are the gifts of the Holy Spirit, a la 1 Corinthians? Like, where, right. earnestly where seek are they? The gifts. That's what Paul says. Yeah, Paul tells 12, them to 14. earnestly seek the gifts. Well, yeah. where are they? And I think, you know, it's really interesting when you talk about our naturalistic explanations of things. But, and I know some people go to, well, God must have just ordained this then, and this is just the way that it is, and the gifts have stopped because that's our experience, right? Our experience tells us that the gifts have stopped. So, right. oh, well. But we know. We know that there were other times in Scripture where there is a lull in the gifts of the Spirit. There's a lull in prophecy. There's a lull. And every time it's associated with judgment of God because the people have sinned and they have put iniquity between them and God. Like, for example, if we jump to um, 1 Samuel, 1 Samuel chapter 3. First Samuel takes place at the end of the time period of the judges, and we know how well that went. It got worse and worse and worse, right? So God's people are literally Sodom and Gomorrah. Right. They're, they're worse than Sodom and Gomorrah because they, they knew about God, right? And in, in 1 Samuel 3, verse 1, it says, Now the boy Samuel was ministering to the Lord in the presence of Eli, and the word of the Lord was rare in those days. There was no frequent vision. And this is after it tells us that the high priest Eli is pretty good, but his sons are evil and they are doing despicable things in the name of God, right? But what if Samuel had just said, well, I guess this is the way it's supposed to be. He sought God, right? Samuel Samuel was called by God to seek God and he did. And what happens? By the time we hit Samuel as an adult, when he is the judge and the priest of Israel and uh, the people ask for a king, we see uh, God actively speaking to Samuel, but not just Samuel. When you hit uh, verses five to seven, he's, he's prophesying to Saul and he's telling Saul what's going to happen in his immediate future. After that, you shall come to Gibeath Eloam, where there is a garrison of the Philistines. And there, as soon as you come to the city, you will meet a group of prophets coming down from the high place with the harp, tambourine, flute, and lyre before them, prophesying. Then the spirit of the Lord will rush upon you and you will prophesy with them and be turned into another man. So there's groups of real prophets. By the time Samuel is a man, there's a group, there's groups of full prophets. And this is not the only place where they're alluded to, but they're, they're, you know, singing and, and prophesying God's word. And, and so does, so does Saul, which is really interesting in a story for another day. So uh, we have we have that example. Um, we also have, I just want to grab here. Sure. I'm just going to be flipping through some scriptures that I think are really interesting in, in pertaining to this. Um, grabbing here Psalm 77. Do you want me to read something in the meantime or you're good? No, I'm, I am... I am grabbing Psalm 77. Okay. All right. So this is a psalm basically of grief. 
because God is not acting. That's right. essentially what Psalm 77 is. And the title is, In the Day of Trouble, I Seek the Lord. Um, I cry aloud to God, aloud to God, and he will hear me. In the day of my trouble, I seek the Lord. In the night, my hand is stretched out without wearying. My soul refuses to be comforted. When I remember God, I moan. When I meditate, my spirit fails. You hold my eyelids open. I'm so troubled that I cannot speak. I consider the days of old, the years long ago. I said, let me remember my song in the night. Let me meditate in my heart. Then my spirit made a diligent search. Will the Lord spurn forever and never again be favorable? Has his steadfast love forever ceased? Are his promises at an end for all time? Has God forgotten to be gracious? Has he in anger shut up his compassion? Selah. Then I said, I will appeal to this, to the years of the right hand of the Most High. I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your wonders of old. I will ponder all your work and meditate on your mighty deeds. Your way, O God, is holy. What God is great like our God? You are the God who works wonders. You have made known your might among the peoples. You, with your arm, redeemed your people, the children of Jacob and Joseph. And it goes on talking about the Exodus and, and, and symbolically about like the waters of the Red Sea and how they saw God and they fled right. to make a pathway through the sea. So we know there are times where God's people call out for, for his working, for his, his, um, his miracles. Um, but we can't just say that his miracles stopped scripturally. Oh, let, me, let me talk about this stuff for a second. If you don't mind, can I just chime in here? Sure. Or do you want to continue? I was just going to say, uh, just let me read this yeah. one more thing. We can't say that I don't think it's, it's accurate to say that God's, God stopped working and that his miracles or his signs stopped working at different periods throughout the scripture, like altogether, because we, 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 Hop over to Jeremiah, and in Jeremiah chapter 32, Jeremiah says this, You have shown signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, and to this day in Israel, and among all mankind, and you have made a name for yourself as at this day. So Jeremiah seems to be claiming God is still working, and that, and that lines up, because there had been a prophet in Israel, right, recording right. the scripture. Um, so, okay, now, okay. go in, and then I'll come back. <laughs> now. Well, now, this, go, this jump! This is just regarding with the ceasing, uh, any type of, uh, anything mm -hmm. ceasing or being less impressive. Like, it's possible for things to be less impressive because of the hardness of our hearts. It's possible for things to be difficult because of the hardness of uh -huh. our hearts. So those are all answered by by those kind of things, or our unbelief in general. So let's just refer to 1 Corinthians 12 and 14. Okay, so 12 is sure. talking about the spiritual gifts. 13 is talking about how love is greater than all things, right? It's like you need love. It's like, you, it doesn't matter if you have a gift of wisdom. It doesn't matter whatever, whatever it is, you need love. And then 14 talks about the order of service and how that needs to be handled. So either point is, I'm gonna start at 12 verse one. I'm probably gonna go to about 11 and then I'm gonna jump over to 14. So bear with me. So verse, uh, chapter 12, verse one. Now concerning spiritual gifts, brothers, I do not want you to be uninformed. You know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to mute idols, however you were led. Therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says, Jesus is accursed, and no one can say, Jesus is Lord, except in the Holy Spirit. Now, there are a variety of gifts, but the same Spirit. So you see what's happening there. He's already contrasting the spiritual gifts to that of pagan idolatry. So that's really important. Why? Because it's the spirit working through you. So the spiritual gifts are a contrast to pagan idolatry. Okay? 
There are a variety of gifts, but the same spirit. There are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of, of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all in everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the spirit for the common good. For to, to one is given through the spirit the utterance of wisdom. And to another, the utterance of knowledge, according to the same spirit. So wisdom and knowledge is part of God's gifts. To another, faith by the same spirit. To other, gifts of healing by one spirit. To another, works of miracles, working of miracles. To another, prophecy. To another, the ability to distinguish between spirits. To another, various kinds of tongues. To another, the interpretation of tongues. All these are empowered by one and the same spirit who apportions to each one individually as he will. So already, already here, we see that healing, working of miracles, prophecy, tongues, distinguishing spirits are all part of these. So if you jump over to 1 Corinthians 14 now, after he does 13 and talks about how love is the greatest way, he then says, pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. Okay? For one who speaks in, in a tongue speaks not to men, but to God. For no one understands him, but he utters mysteries in the spirit. On the other hand, the one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. The one who speaks in a tongue builds up himself, but the one who prophesies builds up the church. Now I want you all to speak in tongues, but even more so to prophesy. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues, unless someone interprets that the church may be built up. So here he's saying that prophecy is greater as you already talked about earlier, for the edification building of the church. Mm -hmm. But then if we skip down to the bottom of 1 Corinthians 14, guess what he says here? This is really, I just think this is really fascinating. After he talks about this whole thing with how, how to do orderly worship. If anyone thinks that he is a prophet or spiritual, he should acknowledge that the things I am writing to you are a command of the Lord. If anyone does not recognize this, he is not recognized. So, my brothers, earnestly desire to prophesy, and do not forbid speaking in tongues. But all things should be done decently and in order. Hear that again. So, after he says, earnestly gifts the spirits, if anyone thinks that he is a prophet or spiritual, in general, a God-fearing God man, he should acknowledge that the things I am writing to you are a command of the Lord. Earnest. So desiring the spiritual gifts is a command of the Lord. If anyone does not recognize this, he is not recognized. So my brothers, earnestly desire to prophesy and do not forbid speaking in tongues. So here we already have in our culture, people for, for, who forbid such things and say, do not do such things. Yeah. And here we're having the exact opposite command to actually earnestly desire such things. So to me... I, I really don't know if it could, it could be any more clear. Yeah. Uh, so do you hear what I'm saying here? So it's like, I, it can't be ceasing. I, and okay. So I was just, while you were talking about that, I was rereading Kita's question. Um, and I think there's something really interesting to do with a misconception about what this is. Okay. Right. So um, they say, why is it so difficult today for some preachers to do signs and wonders as in the times of Jesus oh, and the see. first apostles. And this makes me think of a really common misconception that I hear all the time. I just don't think it's biblical. I just don't think you can get there biblically. I would go there if I could be convinced I'm being 100% like transparent. I would go there. 
I don't think we can say that the gifts of miracles or healing were just at will. That Peter just saw someone was like, you be healed, you be healed, you be healed. I know it sounds like that sometimes in Acts, but when you really carefully look at the scriptures, we see that this was all based on the will of God, that the prophets were told things to do. And sometimes, yes, they they prayed and asked God for something and God granted it to them. But whenever a miracle was done, whenever a prophecy was given, it was at the initiation of God. Even Jesus, there was sometimes where he could not do many signs and wonders because the people did not have faith, right? So he walked away. I mean, we look at, I jotted down a few, a, a few examples. We see Peter, the apostle, acting at the, at the urging of the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 10, right? Do this. So Peter did. Ananias is told to go pray for Paul so that Paul would be healed when he is blind, right? He didn't just see Paul and go, okay, healed, right? And I guess you could argue that that's because Paul was a big bad at that time, which is true, yeah. he was. But then you go back and you look at Moses. Moses didn't just throw his staff over the, the, the Nile from his will because he wanted the Nile to be turned to blood. What does it say? God told Moses, now stretch your staff over the Nile. Now throw down your staff and it'll turn into a snake. Now stretch your staff out and prophesy to the sea that it will split, right? This was all at the urging of God and his Holy Spirit, not at the will of the prophet or the man or the woman themselves. We see this with Isaiah and his dealings with Hezekiah. God tells Isaiah, go say this to Hezekiah. So he does. Then Isaiah, on Isaiah's way out, God's like, okay, now go back because Hezekiah responded. Um, and so, so there's this idea that it's like a superpower. You become like a, like someone with the gift of healing or with the gift oh, of it's prophecy it's not um, yeah. becomes like a DC or superhero. <laughs> I know what you're you saying. Know? No, yeah, it's, and, it's and God I, working And I just you. think when you look at the accounts of the miracles really carefully and holistically, like all, all, all at the same time, I don't think you can say that it's like that. It's like you've been given a superpower because it's at the will of God, right? 100%. Like even when you look at James, you ask and you do not receive because you ask amiss with the wrong motivations, right? Isaiah 59 verse one, where he's like, God's hand is not too short to save, but your iniquity has built a wall between you and God. So miracles happen and giftings work when we're following the will of God in our lives, when we're able to hear the voice of God. So I think that why is it so difficult today for some preachers to do signs and wonders is in the time of Jesus and the apostles. First, let's, let's, let's not, I don't think we can say that it's like in their will to do. Like Jesus also didn't just, I know there's like this popular thing, well, why don't people who have been given the gift of healing just walk into children's hospitals and heal everyone? Well, Jesus didn't even do that. He went to the pool of Bethesda where there were hundreds of people in need who were sick and dying and he healed one. He healed one because that was the will of God, right? Yeah. So we have to be so careful when we're skeptical about the Holy Spirit because I don't know about you, but I don't want to be, I don't want to be bad-mouthing the Holy Spirit right. for the sake of my own pride or my own skepticism. We just got to be really careful here. But I, but yeah, I think I think there there I think there is evidence in the scripture for times of drought when it comes for the working of the Holy Spirit. We see that in Psalms, we see that in 1 Samuel where the vision of, of God was rare. 
But I, and I think there are reasons for that. I think that we can establish that potentially sin and that separation from God in our culture is one of those reasons, which is very yeah, because the nerve-wracking, I think, for us today. Sin separates you from God, and these are the gifts of the Spirit. Spirit is God. Yeah. So I, I these are things we absolutely have to wrestle with. We have to wrestle with. It. So it's not really a question about whether these things are gone. It's a question of okay, well, how should they be ordered, and and how should we go about this? We should really seek to understand the appropriate way of dealing with this, because yeah. I think the scripture is quite clear. And even still. I need to be clear on this as well. We're talking about, oh, do we need spiritual gifts? Okay, well, let's talk about the most important spiritual gift. Paul says that faith is a gift. Yeah. The Holy Spirit is a gift, okay? But what does Paul say? If I speak in tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I, and if I have all faith as to remove mountains, but not have love, I am nothing. That's verses 1 and 2. Now, verse 13. Mm -hmm. So now faith, hope, and love abide. These three. But the greatest of these is love. Love is a gift of the Holy Spirit. And what's important about that is that that is the greatest thing. That's something everyone... So not everyone needs prophecy. Not everyone needs these things for salvation. These, these are gifts. Love is a gift. And that is the most important thing that we're gifted with to do and to exercise and to show, to show the love of God for he so loved the world. But that's what's really important here. And we need to have that priority straight. The priority straight before you can even discern and, and try to apply orderly forms of worship and how to talk about what does it mean to prophesy. You need to have love first. You need to have things in proper order. Love, faith, hope. Um, and I, I think that's what's kind of missing from this discussion here is that we're looking at spiritual gifts um, and... and in all facets of our lives. And, you know, to love God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind is a spiritual gift. Mm -hmm. Agreed. So, besides that, um, do you have anything else you want to say? I don't have anything more I want to add because I don't want to, I don't want to muddle it. We could talk all day about this and, and go back and forth and there's definitely merit to doing that. But uh, what do you think? What are your thoughts on, uh, especially the big question that we asked today, but also the other ones? Do you have any follow-up questions? Do you have any pushback for us? Pop all of it. The good, the bad, and the ugly in the comment section down below because Matlock and I love to go through it and love to respond to you when we have the time, but we always personally go through it and read it. So um, until next week, God bless you and happy reading, happy studying. Thank you so much for watching. We want to keep producing high quality biblical content, but we can't do it without your support. If you feel called to support us, please click the link in the description under donate. Your support really means a lot to us.